This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Emmeline, Joanna, Rosemary, Amy, and Emerson. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Emmeline, who asks, How would you summarize Christianity in one or two sentences? This is a wonderful question, Emmeline, and before I answer it, I'd like each of you listening to think of how you would summarize Christianity in just a line or two. If you had to keep it short, but you didn't want to leave out anything too essential, what would you say? A good summary is short, but it also lends itself to unpacking. You want something you can easily remember and also something that, when you think about it, contains a lot more than the small number of words suggest. For me, perhaps the best short summary is the one that the Apostle Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he describes the heart of his ministry. He calls it a ministry of reconciliation, which means peacemaking. Listen to how he summarizes the gospel. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, this is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19, if you want to look it up. And you really should, because the whole paragraph is worth reading and remembering. Now, there are three big ideas in Paul's summary. First, that God sent Jesus in order to make peace between himself and the world. Now, if there was a need to make peace, then there must have been a conflict, right? So what was the conflict that needed resolving? Well, the second big idea answers that. Christ makes peace by not counting our trespasses or sins against us. So the conflict came from sin, and the solution to the conflict was for the sin not to be counted to us. Now, this is a big idea because there's a lot we can unpack from it. If sin isn't counted to us now, that means it was before Jesus. Who is our sin counted to instead of to us? Well, that's to Jesus on the cross. And what is counted to us now? Well, the righteousness of Jesus. The third big idea is that the message of peacemaking has been entrusted to us. In other words, the good news is for us, but it's not just for us. It's for us to share with everyone. And now Joanna asks, would we still be saved if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead? Because he still would have died for our sins. Joanna, essentially, you're asking whether the atonement would still have worked if there had been no resurrection. And I think the answer to this has to be no, because the two things go together. The reason the grave could not hold Jesus was that death is the payment for sin, and Jesus himself had committed no sin. 
Instead, he died for the sake of our sin. What made his death a payment for our sin was not just that he died, but that he died, which I know sounds confusing, but bear with me. In other words, no one else could have done what Jesus did because the sacrifice had to be without sin, yet the obedience needed to be human, just as the disobedience of Adam had been human. Only Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, could actually do this. And by virtue of who he was, his perfect righteousness and innocence, the grave never had any right to him. So the cross defeated death, which is why we can put our hope in our own resurrection. That means that the atonement and the resurrection are inextricably linked. If you have one, you have the other. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Rosemary. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Rosemary's question. She asks, how does Jesus crush Satan's head? Rosemary, before I answer this fascinating question, let's dig into the biblical context. Now the passage we need to look at is Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, God comes to punish them. He's a just judge, and they've committed a sin that is punishable by death. So, you would expect the judgment in Genesis 3 to be a death sentence. And it is, but it's also complicated. It turns out that God's plan is not just to punish the guilty, but also to show mercy. God delivers in Genesis 3 three curses or punishments to the serpent first, then the woman, and then the man. When he punishes the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse, Genesis 3.15, is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion. In other words, it's the very first hint of the good news of the gospel. Now, there are two pieces of good news here. First, that the woman will have offspring. That means God will show mercy to the human race and not destroy them for their sin. Instead, they will live. Life will be harder, yes, but still there's hope. Secondly, one day there will be a resolution to the enmity or conflict between the serpent's offspring and the woman's. Genesis uses the same word, bruise, to describe the wounds inflicted on either side, but the results are different. The serpent's offspring will bruise his heel, which makes sense for a snake cursed to crawl on his belly and eat the dust of the ground. A man's heel is easy to reach, but his head is too high above the ground. On the other hand, the woman's offspring will wound the serpent's head, and that's a much greater blow. We'll talk about that in a second, but first, notice the exact wording that God uses, he shall bruise your head. Now, who is the he being referred to? The woman's offspring in the singular. Now, going on the wording here, it seems that God is not referring to all the women's children in the plural, but rather to one particular offspring who will stand for them all. Now, who could that be? At the time when Genesis 3.15 was first recorded, no one could answer that question. In fact, some scholars think that after her son Cain killed Abel and another son Seth was born, Eve thought Seth must be the one that God had prophesied. 
No one could have suspected until much later that God was referring to his own son, Jesus. But in the New Testament, it becomes clear that Jesus is the one. He is the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham and David, the son of God. And he was born to defeat Satan and undo his dominion. So the question is, how does Jesus crush Satan's head under his foot? Now, there are two main ways. First, and most important, is the victory of Jesus at the cross and resurrection. It was here that the serpent's children bruised Jesus' heel. They put him to death. And it was here that he crushed the serpent's head by raising again to life and putting death to death. Although it seemed as if the serpent had won, when Jesus rose, it was clear that sin, death, and hell were crushed under his foot. There's a second way that Scripture talks about this victory. If it happened once for all at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that victory is also applied to our own lives by the Holy Spirit, who frees us through the power of the cross from the dominion of Satan and bondage to sin. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 16, verse 20, when he promises, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In other words, just as Jesus triumphed over Satan, those of us whose faith is in Jesus will triumph because of his power working in us. It's a wonderful promise of liberation from the power and punishment of sin. And isn't it incredible to realize that from the very beginning, before the curse was spoken, before the foundation of the world even, God had already set his love on you and was determined already to send Jesus to fight for you and to triumph for you. Never forget how great God's love is or how far back it goes. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. We have two questions, actually, but they're the same question from Amy and from Emerson. And both of them want to know, where in the order of worship is the announcements page? Whenever two people ask the same question on the same Sunday, I know it must be very important. As you know, we've changed the way we communicate announcements at church. Instead of listing them verbally at the beginning of the service, we're printing them out so that you can read them. There are two places that you can look for announcements. One is at the back of the order of worship. where There's a schedule of what's coming up and a page or two listing important items. Today, for example, there's a page about officer nominations because this is the last day to nominate new elders and deacons. Also, there's a separate sheet full of announcements that you'll find next to the order of worship when they're being passed out or when you're grabbing them off the table. This sheet includes more details when needed. In addition, there are often posters on the wall outside the sanctuary that call your attention to what's going on so you don't miss anything. It's always fun to see what's happening at church, so be sure to check all of these sources every Sunday for the latest news. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.